very exciting interviews for you today. One focused on the situation in Venezuela, and the other looking at cyber warfare and how machine learning can help us fight global terrorism. My name is Tim Horgan, and I am the Executive Director of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. Let's get started with the fifth Global in the Granite State podcast. Thank you so much to Professor John Michael Carey, Professor of Government, for joining us today to talk about the situation in Venezuela. He teaches courses in politics of the world, elections and reform, Latin American politics, and foreign aid at Dartmouth College. It is great to have you with us via phone today. Good to be here. Can you give us a brief background on yourself and your interest in Latin American politics? Sure. I'm a professor at Dartmouth, as you mentioned, in the government department, which I guess is called the political science department at most places. So I'm a political scientist. Most of my work is in Latin America. I do a lot of work on elections and the establishment of democracy in places that have often not been democracies historically. And I've done some research over the years in Venezuela. As we all know, over the past several months, we've seen many protests against the Maduro government. Can you give us the background of where we are today and how we got here? The key point of departure would have been the election of Hugo Chavez as president of Venezuela. He was elected in 1998 and became president in 1999. Most people have heard of Hugo Chavez. He was famous in all kinds of ways. And he was president from 1999 until 2013 when he, uh, he died of cancer. And Nicolas Maduro, who's one of the presidents of Venezuela currently, <laughs> and the one who sits in the presidential palace and so far commands most of the resources of government. He was Chavez's last vice president, became president when Chavez died, and he's won two elections since that time. The first one was he won on a, a razor's edge, and shortly after Chavez died, that was a disputed election. Most international observers said it was reasonably fair. The opposition claimed that there were irregularities, and there certainly were. But at any rate, he walked away from that election as the recognized president of Venezuela. And he was serving his term when there was an election in 2015 for Venezuela's Congress. And that was a turning point in politics there because it was the first election since Chavez had won back in 1998 that was won by the opposition. And they won in a landslide, and they took control of the Congress. They actually won a two-thirds majority in that election in December of 2015. And that would have provided them the ability to do things like unseat Maduro's ministers. With a two-thirds majority, they could remove members of the cabinet. They could even have amended the Constitution. They could have really taken charge of governing the country. So Maduro engaged in a little bit of theft at that point. He stole just a couple of seats in that National Assembly based on what I think were pretty dubious rulings by his electoral commission. He denied the opposition the two-thirds majority. They came out of that 2015 election with divided government. And late 2015, early 2016, the opposition was passing laws and Maduro was vetoing them. And all the other institutions of government in Venezuela were on Maduro's side. They had been filled by him and by Chavez in the earlier years. So there was kind of a standoff and, and Venezuelan government was at, at loggerheads. And in 2016, Maduro announced that he was going to summon a new constituent assembly. There was nothing in the Constitution that allowed him to do that. It was a kind of improvisational move. The opposition said, we don't need a new Constitution. <laughs> we just got one 15 years ago. Let's continue to govern. So they held an election in 2016 that was not recognized by most of the international community, and it wasn't recognized by the Venezuelan opposition. And Maduro basically created a constituent assembly. Because only his supporters participated in that election, they dominated the whole body. Once they were seated, 
They haven't actually produced a new constitution, but they have declared themselves to be Venezuela's sovereign legislature. So now you've got two legislatures, one of which is kind of recognized internationally, but not within Venezuela, and the other which is recognized within Venezuela, but not internationally. And then last year, there was a new election for the presidency because Maduro's term was up. So he ran again. He, prior to the election, outlawed, or I should say, I had the Electoral Commission disqualify his main rivals. He imprisoned a number of them and chased others into exile. It was a sham election, and he won it, but it was, again, not recognized by any international bodies or any international observers. And so we ended up in a position at the beginning of this year, in January, where Maduro was about to have himself inaugurated for a new term. And the president of the Congress that had been elected back in 2015, who is this guy, Juan Guaido, stepped up and said, look, you're not the legitimate president. The election that you claim to have won was a sham. The old constitution says that when there is not a legitimately elected president, the presidency passes to the president of the Congress, that's me, to serve as an interim until new elections can be held. So he declared himself president. So now you've got two people declaring themselves president. You've got two different Congresses declaring themselves to be <laughs> the sovereign legislature. You've got just absolute institutional chaos in the country. Some of your attentive listeners may remember that last month, Guaido tried another effort at creating a moment where he would force the military to choose sides. And that was when he had secured a huge international aid shipment that he was going to try to bring into the country through Colombia. And he lined up a bunch of trucks at the Colombian border and promised to bring them across the border on, on a given day. And Chavez at that point sent the military out there to stop them. Guaido, I think, thought at that moment that those soldiers staring across the bridge might lay down their arms or cross the bridge and join his side, and it might create a kind of a tipping point that would allow him to take over. He was wrong in that instance. A couple hundred soldiers defected, but not enough to tip the balance, and Maduro survived. And so really what's been going on this week is another effort on his part to create one of those moments where people have to choose. And in particular, you know, he's trying to sway the military. The military is the pivot. If they stay with Maduro, Maduro's going to survive. If they swing, he's done. So we're kind of waiting and watching right now. I haven't been clicking to update my newspaper online every couple of minutes. I don't know what's happened in the last few hours. But so far, not enough of the military has swung to Guaido to change the balance of power. I will mention that this is a very fluid situation, so things will certainly, I'm sure, have changed by the time people are listening to this in a couple days. But today, May 1st, and yesterday, April 30th, Guaido called for the largest protest in Venezuela's history, looking to topple the Maduro government. Things have been pretty tense for the past two days, hundreds of injuries. Uh, does it appear that he has enough support to bring about the change that he's looking to in the country? He doesn't right now. I woke up yesterday morning and I saw the headline that he had basically released this video with some members of the military behind him and was announcing that he was president. And when I saw that, I thought, gosh, if he's doing that, he must know. He must have lined up his ducks and, and got them in a row. And he must know that the top generals are going to, or at least enough of them are going to swing before he would have tried such a gambit. But yesterday transpired and, and it was not the case. And today the protests are ongoing. And this is kind of one of those situations where the longer it goes on, I think, the less likely it is that people swing. It was remarkable that Guaido was willing to pursue uh, such a risky strategy. When regimes fall, when they collapse all of a sudden, in retrospect, people always think, oh, it was, you know, that was inevitable. But at the moment where somebody has to stand up and, you know, in a sense, 
dare the security forces to shoot them. There's immense uncertainty, and Guaido has been sort of trying to bring about one of those moments. And so far, the loyalists in the military have not blinked. And it seems like the U.S. has had some of those similar thoughts uh, around the military support for Maduro with some of the things that John Bolton and Secretary Pompeo have been saying in terms of some of the senior leadership down there wanting to defect. But it, it has not seemingly come about the way people have thought it would. Yeah, exactly. There have been some signals coming from our State Department or National Security Council indicating that they thought that more top brass was prepared to defect. I don't know whether that's genuine, that they really had information and that maybe people got cold feet, or whether or not they are engaging in a little bit of misinformation warfare, trying to create a fait accompli. It really is one of these things where I think most people think that there's a, a huge number of Venezuelan military below the very top ranks that want to be on the right. They want to be on the winning side, I should say, <laughs> the right side of the process. They want to be on the winning side. And if they think everybody else is jumping, they're going to jump too. And so, you know, what our own administration may have been doing was trying to, you know, sort of foster that. I don't know why they said what they said, but so far their statements have not been, been redeemed. So can you make any predictions on where this will end up and what the likelihood of U.S. intervention would be, particularly given some of the things the administration has been saying? I don't know. I mean, you know, I saw a statement from Pompeo saying that, you know, military action is on the table. They've said that before in the past. Frankly, that I think is the least helpful thing they can do for Guaido and the Venezuelan opposition because that feeds Maduro's narrative and validates Maduro's narrative. Maduro's narrative is that the opposition is just an American-controlled plot, that it doesn't enjoy popular support, and anything that comes out of Washington that appears to validate that, I think, resonates with Venezuelans. Most Venezuelans have been suffering terribly under Maduro's government, and I think most Venezuelans would, and I'm, I'm certain that most Venezuelans would like to see the back of Maduro. I mean, in the public opinion polling, some of which I've done and others that I've read, 85% of Venezuelans oppose Maduro. Those are incredibly high numbers. But, you know, there is this sort of residual distrust of the United States, particularly if the idea of U.S. military intervention. And that's widespread in Venezuela, like it is in a lot of Latin America. So to the extent that U.S. officials are taking any action or making any statements that you know, would appear to validate that narrative, they're really helping Maduro out. Well, thank you so much for giving us some of your time and your insights. Again, we're here with Professor John Michael Carey of Dartmouth College. Thank you so much. Okay, take care. On May 19th, the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire will host David Sanger, New York Times national security correspondent, to talk about cyber warfare and its implications for U.S. foreign policy. The event will be held at Southern New Hampshire University starting at 6 p.m. Audience members will have the opportunity to hear firsthand about the global cyber war going on behind the scenes every day. This includes Russian disinformation campaigns, Chinese intellectual property theft, and other countries' efforts to weaken their adversaries. This fundraiser for the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire helps them to continue to build a global community here in the state and educate people about the world around them. For more information about the event, please visit their website at www.wacnh.org. We took some time to head out to Dartmouth and interview a cybersecurity expert 
from the Institute for Security, Technology, and Society. Here's what we learned. We are here with Professor Subramanian of Dartmouth College, director of the Institute for Security, Technology, and Society. Thank you so much for joining us today. Great to be here, Tim. Can you give our audience a little bit of a background about yourself and about the Institute? Tim, I came to Dartmouth in August of 2017 after being a professor at the University of Maryland, College Park, for about 28 years. My research has focused in the last 15 or 20 years on looking at how computational models help us better understand terrorists by very objectively analyzing data, by coming up with methods to predict their actions at whatever level of granularity the data permits, and at using those learned models to understand how we might reshape outcomes that we don't like. The Institute for Security, Technology, and Society at Dartmouth was actually created as a visionary institute way back in 2000 to look at issues relating to cybersecurity. Even though cybersecurity was a problem back then, we all know that this has grown by leaps and bounds. So the Institute currently has major programs looking at securing the Internet of Things, everything from a Fitbit to a power plant, looking at methods to protect social platforms, think of protecting humans from bots, think of influence campaigns run by the Russians, and more garden variety malicious activities such as generating fake reviews on Yelp or TripAdvisor. The third plank of our work looks at insider threat. How do we identify individuals within an organization who are potential risks for the organization in terms of stealing, for example, intellectual property? And finally, we're also looking at methods to deter attackers. Today, it's often eight 10, 12 months before an advanced persistent threat cyber attack on an organization is even detected. And during this time, the attackers have a free run of the enterprise's data and networks, and they can make off with whatever they will. How do we impose costs on them? How do we make this more risky for them and less risky for us? Those are questions that our institute is looking at. Sounds like you've got enough to keep you quite busy. uh, (laughs) A lot of really important things are coming out of here. You mentioned the computational cultural dynamics program that you created. Can you talk a little bit about how that functions, what data you're looking at, and how you're creating outcomes, particularly based towards terrorist organizations? So we started out by thinking of a terrorist organization. So when you look at the counterterrorism literature that's out there today, it's very much a social science approach. People spend a lot of time interviewing leaders of these organizations, arrested individuals, looking at their writings, and building a qualitative and very, very insightful analysis most times. But as a computer scientist, I think in terms of numbers. I think in terms of letting the data tell me what my conclusion should be. So we said, can we take objective data about a terrorist group, and can we learn a predictive model from that data? which can be validated and tested statistically and using other methods. And then can we use that model to make predictions? And then when we don't like those predictions, can we use that model to tell us what to do about those predictions so that the outcomes are closer to what we'd like? So we took the first terrorist group we studied was Hezbollah. It was a very small, and in retrospect, about 15 years after the fact, a not so strong paper, But what we had done was to reduce Hezbollah to a spreadsheet. We had variables associated with the environment in which they operated, the actions of other actors at that time toward Hezbollah, and the actions that Hezbollah took. So think of this as a spreadsheet, one row for every year, one column for every variable. Our Hezbollah study was a very simple study, 
by the time we studied Lashkri Taiba, the group that carried out the Mumbai attacks in 2008, we felt we had gotten this right. And we now had a much bigger spreadsheet, much better populated at the monthly level with very fine-grained information. We developed machine learning methods to mine that data in a way that would make the results intelligible. So rather than an algorithm spitting out a forecast, so tell us why it had come up with a forecast and what the behavior of the group was. So for example, in the case of Lashkri Taiba, our algorithms pointed out that any time there was internal dissension in the group, they carried out no attacks whatsoever. Interesting. And that has huge policy implications. If you know that, you know that you may want to induce dissension in the group and thus mitigate terrorist attacks by them. So speaking of, and I am going to butcher their name here, but Lashkar Itaba, yeah. they are not a very well-known name here in the U.S. Usually when we're talking terrorist groups, we're talking Al-Qaeda and ISIS. But more recently, they carried out a suicide bombing in India just this past year, and India retaliated by bombing areas of Pakistan, and we had a little rise in tensions there, we'll call it. Can you tell us a little bit about that organization, where they come from, what they are interested in, and where they operate? Certainly. So Lashkri Taiba, or LET, has been around since around 1990. They're based out of Pakistan. Their principal grievances are against the current state of affairs in Kashmir. As you know, Kashmir is a highly disputed province between India and Pakistan. It was divided up in a certain way in 1947 when the colonial rulers of India, Britain, left. And that division has not been to the liking of the current-day Pakistanis. So that is perhaps one of the major roots of the conflict. The group itself has consistently carried out attacks primarily in India since 1990. Our data suggests that it's also closely linked to the Pakistani intelligence service, the ISI. Such relationships, of course, are much harder to validate because of the murky nature of the intelligence business. But I think most people in the business understand that that is the case. The Mumbai attacks are believed to have been carried out with control rooms in Pakistan when those attacks were carried out. This is the best known attack carried out by Lashkar. And their goal is currently to try, at the very least, to exert pressure on India in the words of former Pakistani President Zia-ul-Haq, keep the pot boiling but not boiling over. I don't remember if those are his exact mm. words, but something along those lines. So that, I think, Lashkar, because they have state backing, just as Hezbollah has state backing, is a very lethal and dangerous terrorist group. It certainly seems like that area of the world right now is, is experiencing a lot of challenges around terrorism with what happened recently in Sri Lanka. So hopefully some of these agencies are able to use your computational cultural dynamics program to work on helping to mitigate some of these groups. So can you tell us any successes that you've seen that have come out of your program here? Well, we put out a set of forecasts during the last Indian election. And as an example, one of those forecasts was about an attack. We actually put this out in the press. And sure enough, during the time frame involved, there was an attack. It's not 100% clear exactly who the attack was carried out by, but it's pretty clear that it was carried out either by Lashkri Taiba or the Indian Mujahideen, which is a closely affiliated group. And in fact, one might almost call Indian Mujahideen a you know arm of Lashkar in India. Mm -hmm. 
So moving to the Institute for Security, Technology, and Society, can you tell us a little bit about what the Institute is doing these days to tamp down some cyber attacks, prepare people for the cyber warfare that is going on, particularly around disinformation campaigns and the like? Yes. So the first thing in most cyber attacks is that many of them are due to the frailties of humans. You know, we as humans think we are unpredictable, but we may be more predictable, or at least some of us may be more predictable than others. And many of these attacks start out with either a spear phishing attack or a less targeted but still a phishing attack. And usually somebody in an organization falls for it. We're looking at many, many things around attacks. One is most of us have learned that we should be careful with what we click on in our emails. But how careful are we when we look at our Twitter feeds? How careful are we when we look at our Facebook posts? And even though all these companies do take a great deal of trouble to try and ensure that their content is malware-free, nobody's perfect. So we look at methods by which we might get infected. What is the attack vector that hits humans, who are the first line of defense in cybersecurity? We look at questions such as, how can we secure communications between our wearable devices? You know, most of us think Fitbit today when we think of wearables, but there are so many other kinds of wearables. And in the next few years, there are going to be implantables. So part of our goal in ISTS is to think beyond what's there today. But look at how attacks will evolve in the future as new kinds of devices become more prevalent in the market. So how do we make sure, for example, that a wearable device that is monitoring, say, fertility for somebody is not leaking data when it's communicating with the central server? My distinguished colleague at Dartmouth, Dave Coates, is looking at questions that relate to protecting individual privacy. But at the same time, as you asked in your question, Tim, we're also looking at issues relating to national security. We've all seen what happened in 2016 a very well-executed and very lethal campaign which targeted our democracy. So we've looked at questions such as how do we identify influence bots on Twitter? There are all kinds of bots on Twitter, and I should say that not all of them are bad. For example, some organizations have bots to send out alerts. For a while, I don't know if this is still there, the USGS, Geological Survey, used to have a bot that would send out alerts about earthquakes. And that is one more way of getting the warnings out to people through Twitter. So not all bots are bad, but bots that try to do certain things are not good. And influence election outcomes in a surreptitious way is definitely one of them. So we looked at methods by which we could identify bots in general, trying to sway opinion on a very specific set of topics and figure out how to disambiguate that from bots trying to do other things. Bots often don't operate in isolation. There are a whole cluster of bots operating together, and these different accounts are called sock puppet accounts. We looked at how sock puppet accounts behave as well in a joint effort with friends at Stanford. We looked at my colleague at the ISTS, Sarush Rasugi, conducted what I think is the most comprehensive study of fake news in elections ever. He led a project or was the technical director of a project called the Electome Project, which got a tremendous amount of data from Twitter during the last election, the 2016 national election. And he came up with methods to identify things like who's susceptible to a piece of information that is not correct. Who's more likely to spread that? Because all these fake news mechanisms play to the frailties of humans. If nobody falls for it, then it's not very effective. So we need to understand both the mechanism used to design the attack, as well as how individuals are either inadvertently or intentionally spreading it. And so Sarush is one of the pioneers in this area. He had a blockbuster paper. I don't know if scientific papers can be called blockbusters, (laughs) but from a scientific perspective, this was a blockbuster paper for me in Science Magazine a couple of years back. Uh, You know, anybody who wants to understand 
how fake news spreads and the mechanisms used to spread fake news by adversaries should go take a look at that paper. Mm. And outfits like the New York Times actually featured that paper yeah. in their newspaper a few years back. So if you're afraid of reading a technical paper, <laughs> go to Google Vasugi, V-O-S-O-U-G-H-I in the New York Times and you'll probably find something about them there. I'm sure that's beyond and, my understanding, but I am interested to read it and see where it all goes. And you know, I do want to say one thing, a shameless plug for my <laughs> university, Dartmouth College. My colleague in engineering, George Sabenko and his colleagues, were amongst the very first ever to understand that information could be weaponized. Mm. And he talked about what he called cognitive hacking in a fabulous paper as far back as 2002. Mm -hmm. So he talked about how adversaries would hack the mind of individuals who were susceptible to it and get them to do things. And fake news was the example he used, but in the context of manipulating the stock market rather than manipulating an election. All right. So we have him to blame then. We have him. (laughs) (laughs) Well, speaking of shameless plugs, we on May 19th are having David Sanger of the New York Times coming to talk about his book, The Perfect Weapon, looking at cyber warfare around the world. And I know you in 2015, I believe it was, sat on a panel with him about your book, The Global Cyber Vulnerability Report. Can you give us a little bit of a sense of where we stand in terms of cyber warfare, how vulnerable systems are, do we need to be worried about our power grid being shut down? Just a little bit of background information on the global cyber war. Yes. So let me start by saying that David's an amazing speaker, very, very knowledgeable in this field with the kinds of sources I can only dream of having. So he knows a whole lot of stuff. He knows all the inside stories that all of us would like to know and perhaps can't. So I'm going to be very excited about reading David's new book and hopefully attending his session in Manchester later in May. Where is all this going? Are we vulnerable? Everybody I know who owns any kind of electronic device today is vulnerable to a cyber attack. And that includes us as individuals, including so-called cybersecurity experts, uh, and I would include myself in that number. We're all vulnerable. So that's the first thing to recognize and admit. Our power grid is highly vulnerable. We buy all our manufacturing infrastructure, our energy infrastructure, our financial infrastructure. All these complex systems are cobbled up together with millions of components that come from all over the world. Even components that have been very well vetted, it's very hard to claim they're 100% secure, even by themselves. And when you put these systems together in novel ways, nobody's necessarily vetting the new vulnerabilities that arise when multiple pieces are put together. So in addition to the fact that many of these individual items are manufactured abroad, leading to a supply chain risk, there's also the issue that things are put together to work, to carry out the functions that they're supposed to carry out. A bank is intended to engage in financial transactions, make sure that money flows to the right places at the right time. They were not necessarily designed to protect us from somebody trying to steal personal information about us, even though designers of financial systems were aware of those possibilities a long time back. So I think we're all vulnerable, and attacks are just going to get more interesting in the coming years in somewhat frightening ways, I think, Tim. I mean, let's think what might happen over the next couple of years. You know, you look relatively young, but I'm a little older than you, and some of us are going to need devices that are implanted in our bodies. So think, you know, some kind of new stent, some kind of new artificial organ that we need, 
And we would rather these organs and health of these organs, these electronic organs now, are monitored in a continuous way. None of us want to die because our pacemaker stopped working. We'd like to know that well in advance. The good news, machine learning helps us do that much better today than it did 20 years back. But the bad news, you've got to monitor and communicate the results of those monitoring to external entities through some kind of channel. So think about the opportunities for hackers who now look at this incredibly large diversity of devices and say, hmm, I wonder if I can carry out a ransomware attack by telling VS, hey, you've got this artificial organ. I don't have any yet, but <laughs> who knows? You've got this artificial organ and we're going to show you that we can control it. And you're gonna see that on your phone that's connected to this artificial organs. And we're gonna show you that we can trigger this device to do something a little different from what would be normal. So you might feel it physiologically, but you might also see a very small tweak on your phone saying that, hey, this is behaving in this weird spiky way. And then they say, hey, listen, unless you transfer so much money to us in Bitcoin, we're gonna make that get a lot worse. These kinds of attacks are things we need to think about early. Biomedical manufacturers are gonna to have to think about these new risks of some malicious hacker in some distant country. That's a threat we've not seen 20 years back or 30 years back, and it's a threat we need to worry about. You can imagine the same thing happening with power plants. You can imagine the same thing happening with oil refineries. So all of us have to be more alert. Very sobering view of things. <laughs> so for one final thought, what is one thing we all could and should be doing to reduce our vulnerability and something that we can start doing today? I have heard the term cyber hygiene used. In our daily lives, you know, we pretty much get up in the morning and brush our teeth and maybe take a shower and get out the door. That's hygiene 101 for most of us. We teach kids all these things from the time they are one, two, three to do these things. We need to treat cybersecurity the same way. My kids, your kids, they're all using computers, iPads, iPhones by the time they're you know, barely two or even one in some cases, and they don't understand the ramifications. So we need to bake that into their very psyche from a very early age. They need to understand that there are cyber risks out there. They need to understand the risks of sharing too much information. And we, as adults, need to do the same. These threats have emerged after we grew up and became adults, so we're not always as well poised to understand them as little kids are. So one, don't share information on public sites unless you need to. Two, anytime you get anything that looks suspicious, do not respond. Pick up the phone and call the person. So if you see an email that comes from your boss or your family saying, transfer so much money, I need it, it may be true, but you do not want to go on the strength of an email. You want to pick up the phone, use a number that you know as that person, as opposed to a number that might be in the email, call them. Do not share password, and please don't write your passwords down and put them in your wallet. So good password hygiene, it's like hiding the keys to your house or your car. Those are some small things you can do. There are, of course, many others as well. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for your time. Again, we're here with Professor Subramanian of the Institute for Security, Technology, and Society. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Tim. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to the Global in the Granite State podcast. We look forward to seeing you at the Global Forum on May 19th with David Sanger. Thank you.